If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select Eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Mm, it's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore. See the love. This summer's best flavors are at GNC. GNC has more protein and more pre-workouts and more flavors, starting at just $19.99. Like Little Debbie Cosmic Brownies Protein from Rise, C4 Energy's New Hawaiian Punch, and so many more. Hit the sweet spot this summer with GNC's collection of the best flavors from the best brands. Shop now at GNC.com or visit your GNC store today. When I started writing this book, I didn't want to put personalities into it because I thought, do you know what? Chamberlain and Churchill, God, what a boring <laughs> way of talking about the Second World War. It's been done to death. Everybody knows all that stuff so well. And then, of course, actually, when you come to start writing it, you realise that oh, it's impossible to tell these stories without... That was Daniel Todman talking about writing the first volume of his sweeping new history of the Second World War. This is what we were fighting for. This is the England that we've just fought for. There's a sense in which the country house comes to epitomise, it comes to symbolise what the war was all about. And that was Adrian Tinniswood remarking on the impact of the First World War on the English country house. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of July 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Dr Daniel Todman, a historian based at Queen Mary, University of London. Daniel is the author of Britain's War, Into Battle, 1937 to 1941. 
the first half of an ambitious new history of Britain and the Second World War, which also surveys the years either side of the conflict. Daniel spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton. Why did you write about this particular subject and why did you write about it in the way that you have the approach that you've taken to it, I guess? Um, So I guess I'd always been uh, fascinated by the Second World War and Britain's part in it, um, in part because I grew up with it as something that was in the background of my my family's life um, and in part because it was such a a huge historical phenomenon. Um, And also, I mean, a lot of my previous work had been about the First World War uh, and that sort of carried carried you through historically uh, to thinking about what had happened next. And then in terms of the approach, um, well, it struck me that very often the histories of Britain in the Second World War were being written separately so and understood separately. Um, and you could see that in the books, but also in the way the subject was taught um, in schools and at university, and often the way it was presented on television or in museums and things like that. And that that was that there was a very clear separation between fighting fronts and home front. Mm. Um, and, of course, one of the contrasts that you think about uh, between the Second World War and the First World War, probably the images that are called to people's minds straight away, if you think about Britain in the Second World War, are often home front images, mm. whereas, you know, with the First World War, automatically, I think it's probably a fighting front, a trench image. Um, so uh, and that seemed to me to be a problem, that these two histories were separate, Whereas, in fact, the only way to understand what had happened and the the way the war had been fought and its impact on Britain was to try and bring them together. Mm. So, and that's really the guiding light for for, for all the, the the research and writing that's happened since is to think about the interrelation between those two things and how it is that we can tell those stories together and how that changes our understanding of the of the conflict um, and, and and at different levels. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if we think about there being a separation between fighting and home, uh, kind of at a broader conceptual level, then there's also obviously a split between the political, the the economic, the military, the social histories of the war. Uh, so again, trying to, to integrate all of those is really crucial to the project. And that's also, I mean, I think in terms of a, a, if history is meant to have a bigger purpose, uh, then the Second World War remains such a, a huge, a huge fact a huge thing in Britain today, a huge something that people know about that's a reference point and yet actually is probably not terribly well understood. Yeah. Uh, so to or rather understood in uh, in different ways by different people to different degrees. Mm. And one of the the amazing and difficult things about writing about it is that some people uh, you, you know you have a huge number of people who know a lot about a particular aspect of the conflict, far, far more than I ever will. Um, and sort of trying to find a way to tap, to both to tap into their expertise, but also to say something new for them so that they could think, oh, this bit that I know about, where does that fit in relation to everything else? But also, uh, and this, this came to me particularly through teaching uh, at an undergraduate level, the sense that an awful lot of young people now don't really have any uh, knowledge of the, the Second World War um, and that they needed a, a sort of bigger, broader picture to understand, to be able to make sense of any particular detail. So that actually um, focusing on an individual theme was not hugely helpful in terms of gaining a broader uh, comprehension, um, because in isolation it didn't it lacked the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first volume mm. starts in 1937. How should we understand the Britain that exists at the time the book starts? Read the book, that's how you understand it. <laughs> One of the reasons for starting in 1937 is is to get a sense of 
uh, a country which is very different from the one we live in today. Um, and which is not, it's not over the, the boundary of, of lived experience, but for a lot of people, it's a, they've grown up with a country that's nothing like the Britain of the 1930s. Although we can see a lot of, of modern Britain emerging at that point. And what I try and capture in the first chapters of the book is the sense of this simultaneously being a very uh, modern place, but one with, with continuities that are stretching further back, um, that it's a country in which mass democracy is a relatively recent arrival, um, uh, and that there are all sorts of worries about what that might mean still, but that it's, it's, it's emerged from the period of greatest anxiety in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. So actually it's a very stable place in which uh, there's a widespread buy-in to democracy, um, even if people are, are arguing about what democracy might mean exactly, that it's quite a politically vibrant place in lots of ways, that there's a big ideological divide based on whether people are socialist or not. Mm. Um, and that that's, that's, a, you know, that's a, a very important uh, part of, of uh, defining who people are at that point. It's interesting that there's that kind of divide you mentioned, but also it seems so stable. What factors do you think caused it to be so stable during during the 30s? So I guess you could look at economic factors and say, you know, the, the British experience of the Depression is not as bad as uh, is suffered in other places. So people aren't pushed to uh, desperation in quite the same way. And the worst of the Depression is quite geographically confined. Um, and again, that probably helps to create a more stable mood. I think it's also actually about uh, politicians who are still often underrated, um, uh, MacDonald and Baldwin, that actually in some ways, whatever their, their faults as leaders, they're, they're much worse things. I guess that's one of the themes of the first part of the book. There are worse things that could happen to you in the 1930s than having Stanley Baldwin as your prime minister. <laughs> and in some ways, although that, that focus on, that relentless focus on finding the middle ground is is not necessarily you know it, it can be redefined by a church as being insufficiently dynamic right you're not you're not greeting the great problems of the age but at the same time it's 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 inculcating this idea that that stability is a really important british value mm-hmm. um and i guess that democracy uh, can work or british a very british version of democracy can work mm. uh, you stress in the book about how important it is that you tell the story forwards mm. Um, and something that interests me was the uh, idea that people, there was this looming war that people were, mm. were scared of and that affected uh, people's directions. How, how did it do that? Well, I think, well, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating contrast, isn't it, with the, with the Britain of pre-1914, that in a way the, 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 the First World War revives, if not quite out of a clear blue sky. It, it's not necessarily the war that people in Britain think is going to break out, even quite late on in the summer of 1914. Whereas in 1939, the idea that there's going to be a big, a European slash world war is going to break out has been with people for a decade. And I, I, I think one of the things that I find interesting is the way in which um, those fears were managed and, and uh, both individually and politically. So do people really spend all their time? How, how worried are they? I mean, I think that's one of my, again... Um, you sort of got this overwhelming cultural sense of the, the conflict coming and these incredible pictures of, um, you know, uh, local civil defence organisations, everybody in gas masks and anti-gas capes, the colossal fear that the 
effectively the worst of the Western Front, the First World War, is going to be recreated on the home front um, by means of aerial bombardment, particularly gas. And yet at the same time, people go on. <laughs> um, and when you look at things like evacuation or the reaction to the outbreak of war, actually there isn't that mass panic that had been widely anticipated. Well, why is it that, that doesn't happen? Is that because people are essentially stable or is it because of the way in which they've been reassured about the, the war has actually become winnable or, or defence against air attack is, um, is achievable um, by the end of the 1930s. One of the strands of the book is that people's misconceptions of what was happening at the time mm. may have in some senses fed into our current misunderstanding of what happened. Do you think there's any 21st century misconceptions that you'd like this book to correct that are perhaps mm. based on? I, th- I think I'd cast that differently, which is to say... I try not to talk about misconceptions in the sense that often what people believe about the war matters to them a great deal. And I think previously in my historical career, I've I've made the mistake of setting myself up as mythbuster. But actually, I think that's a bit disrespectful. Uh, You know, who am I to say that people's myths aren't important? They might might be not based on the same sort of interpretation of evidence that I put forward. Um, But what I think is interesting is the extent to which those ideas are being constructed at the time. So one of the things that I try to bring out is that, that this isn't something which is happening afterwards. I think that often when we think about the past, we can think about there's a sort of, there's a set historical reality and then somewhere between then and us, it gets mythologised. Whereas actually what's happening is that even at the time, the way that the war is being written about it shapes how people understand it and that that comes through to us in the present day. But again, there's there's always a question there about who, you know, depends who you're reading. Um, But I think it's particularly, one of the things that interests me is the extent to which the, um, the mass media culture that developed between the wars allows some commentators to reach a very big audience um but often they're putting across a message which you know the reason the reason that it's acceptable or that it's it's um it enjoys currency is because it matches what people see or it matches it to a sufficient extent that they accept it or it it matches how they'd like the world to be you mentioned they're the people at the top Mm. um how did their personalities and the way they interacted with other people around them shape mm. the course of the war during this period? Do you know, when I started writing this book, I didn't want to put personalities into it because I thought, do you know what, those stories of Ch- Chamberlain and Churchill, God, what a boring <laughs> way of talking about the Second World War. Uh, it's been done to death. Everybody knows all that stuff so well. And then, of course, actually, when you come to start writing it, you realise that oh, it's impossible to tell these stories without... Uh, it's possible to understand what's going on without looking at these people as personalities uh, and actually individuals who do have who do have a lot of influence except that they're obviously operating within a set of circumstances which is bigger than them and um, I guess one of the things that I try and I'm trying to do particularly with Churchill is is to recast the war in a sense where everything that happens in Britain in 1940 is not down to Winston Churchill um, and which gets across a sense of just what a remarkable, whatever else you want to say about him, remarkable person he is, uh, and how willing he is to um, to openly intervene to match his own prejudices with a sense that actually, if Churchill had gone under a bus in 1940, would Britain have acted very differently? And I think that... 
that actually he's not so far outside the strategic consensus that he's the crucial figure. Mm. Or, or maybe he's more crucial than anybody else, but maybe actually the way to think about it is not... You know, there's a, there's a really fundamental question, isn't there, about the influence of the individual on history. Um, but it seems to me that actually at the point of, of decision-making, maybe he's less important than... Um, than he wrote himself to be. Mm. That doesn't mean that he's not important in all sorts of other ways, or that he's... Imp- I, mean, I think you could ask all sorts of interesting questions about if, the, if, if Churchill isn't there, what happens to, to bombing within British strategy? Um, what happens in terms of how the, the Anglo-American uh, relationship is managed? Mm. Um, because those are things where, where he takes such a close grip. I think it's interesting to imagine, if you carry out the thought experiment, I'm not big on counterfactuals, but if you carry out the thought experiment of what happens, what happens without Churchill, does Britain go under in 1940? Well, no, actually, I think, I think a, a, lot of, a lot of the first part of, of, of the book is about explaining, actually, it would have been, it would have been highly unusual. I mean, it, it would have taken a, a, a colossal influence of, person, of a personality as strong as Churchill's from the other side to get Britain out of the war in May 1940. Why, why was Britain able to carry on beyond 1940 then? What was the key factor in, in that? Well, I think it's the, although British power is declining, it remains an extremely strong and resilient country. It's geographically blessed by, you know, because um, you've got to invade it overseas. Um, it's got a huge navy, not a navy that's big enough to cover all the threats that are facing it in the 1930s, but more than a big enough navy to make sure that the tiny Kriegsmarine can't, in, you know, cover an invasion in 1940. It's very wealthy. Mm. In, internationally, its wealth is is it's not just its wealth in terms of its assets, but in terms of what it can leverage in terms of debt, is immense mm. and just out of uh, out completely out of Germany's league. Now, there are all sorts of problems about dollars <laughs> within that, but providing... And, 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 and that's something that will play through, um, you know, during the, during the rest of the war um, and, and afterwards. But in terms of, um, of what it means, in terms of maintaining the flow of, of supplies in 1940 and being able to adapt, it's a very... You know, the shock of the French defeat in 1940 is absolutely huge. And the, the sort of the systemic shock that you're recasting... All these systems of um, uh, of trade, uh, and that's that's very very uh, uh, challenging, um, and being able to withstand that not not in terms of getting guns and ammunition from the United States because those aren't going to come yet, but in terms of making sure that you can keep importing things like steel, actually having a, a stockpile of 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 wealth that gets used up very quickly is is really important, mm. um, and also it makes Britain look like a eventually makes Britain look like a decent bet, that either you will not just... I mean, we conventionally think about that in terms of America and, and, and American assessments of whether it's worth... worth is, it, is, is Britain worth it? Mm-hmm. You know? But actually, that's true for countries right the way round the world, which are going to run up, uh, allow Britain to run up a, a big debt with them. So actually, you know, either Britain... If Britain goes under, you're going to be able to confiscate all those British investments... Uh, which you're essentially holding as collateral. Mm. <laughs> um, and if it doesn't go under, the British will pay you back. Are there any other major ways in which you'd like people to see the events of 1940 differently? So I think it, it's trying to get that balance between 
recognising what a frightening slash exciting moment 1940 was, that the, the prospect... There's, whatever we, in retrospect, think, at the time, people genuinely believe uh, that there's a high risk of invasion. We could discuss Churchill's view on whether an invasion is coming or not changes over time. Pretty much everything Churchill thinks changes over time. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, if you'd gone out, if you'd gone out onto the Myland Road in September 1914 and said, are they going to, you know, if they get the chance, they're going to come, people would have said yes. Mm. So, so trying to respect that and explain why that can be, you know, simultaneously stirring and frightening is, is really important, I think. Because that helps to explain why Churchill's political status is so, become popular political status is so high, not because people think he's going to be a good, he's even necessarily a good prime minister, <laughs> but that he, he he's seen as the hero who saved the country, who stood up in 1940 when people were frightened. Mm. But at the same time, say, actually, that's not, you know, what's, what's shaping your life in Britain in 1940 may not, is not probably not German bombs, terrifying though they are, and, and if, you're, if you're in certain areas, then this is it's a devastating attack. Again, if you're here, yeah. literally here, in, uh, at this, this point uh, in the East End, it's a very, uh, a very intense bombardment. But large parts of Britain are going to be uh, untouched. Mm. Um, and that actually there, what might matter most is the shipyards opening again. Which is something which has been happening from the 1930s, all the, you know, the steelworks going into round-the-clock production or um, the price of food rocketing up um, or people being conscripted, you know, uh, men being conscripted into the forces and moving away and the problems that causes in terms of, um, uh, of family finances. Mm. And, and that can be a, a just as definitive at an individual level, as any of these big-picture, high-politics, high-strategy things that we're talking about. Mm. At what point do you end this first volume, and mm. why did you decide to end it there? So we end uh, in December 1941 with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour, uh, the Americans uh, finally joining the war, and then Germany's declaration of war on America. Um, so this... It, it's... it's been very, I've been very fortunate to have the support of the publishers in making it two volumes because that two volumes, it's not just a, um, a sort of get, get to this point. You know, it's not like it's not just a physical constraint of the book. Mm. Yes, it, it it replicates a structure of the war, but but from the end of 1941, what is essentially a European conflict, albeit one that's had a global impact, becomes a world war, mm. and it's being cast on a different stage. And that's the point where you'll see a lot of the a lot of the crises that have been incipient since the 1930s in the Far East and in India are now going to break forth with new strength uh, um, and, and cast us towards a new world, which is, the, of course, the, the, the title of Volume 2. Um, so I, I wanted to end with that sense of, um, in a way, one conflict ending and another beginning. And, of course, you know, since one of those one of the themes from running through from 1940 is this question of are the Americans ever going to come in? And if they're not going to come in, can their war industry ever be organised and mobilised enough to make a difference to Britain and Russia? <laughs> um, so that sense of um, mixed 
the mixed emotions that must have been running through Winston Churchill's head in uh, December 1941, when simultaneously the war, you know, he gets the war he wants, but not on the terms he wanted. Mm. Um, And because of how that conflict breaks out, actually this man whose whose whole being was about British power was going to see the most calamitous decline in British power, probably of any prime minister in the 20th century. Mm. Um, So, again, that will be a kind of abiding theme of book two. You say that this is the last time that Britain really had kind of power on the world stage, was able to change the course of world history. Is is that...? Yeah, so... That's no, it, Britain will end the war much more powerful than it was in 1940. You know, in terms of its uh, in terms of its military power, its naval power, its aerial power. I mean, it's it's colossally strong. <laughs> um, a lot of that's built on American finance, <laughs> um, but you know, none the worse for that. But it's also, in a sense, it's again what you see working out during that second half of the war is, I think, a lot of the things that will make that power unsustainable as a, an alternative to the superpowers in the post-war era, in terms not just of, of empire and the costs of maintaining empire and trade and, and international economics, but also actually in military terms, how much does the kit cost mm. that you're moving? Again, I think that's one of the... Um, a reason for separating the two halves of the war actually. You don't quite get, I mean, again, the, the chronological boundary isn't quite as precise there. And one of the things that um, there's some of, but they, you know, that's about how you separate ideas across this. That is a structural issue about where you can put things within the narrative. Um, that sense of, of the technological shift that will happen in the second half of the war, that effectively you're fighting a war that's been thought about in 39 to 41, but hasn't happened yet. <laughs> In particular, the the overwhelming uh, effect of air power and how that will change how the war is fought and determine the end of the war uh, in 1944. But those that air power is developing so quickly and it's so expensive that actually it will prove beyond what what Britain's able to sustain. How would you like this uh, book to change people's views of this period of history? I I would be overjoyed if it did two things. I if if people who already think they know something about the war are caused to think about what they know and to ask themselves how do I know that, then I'd I'll be ecstatic. So that's I guess a process rather than a uh, a fact, <laughs> or or to to position what they know within a broader framework, mm. and for people who think they don't know anything about the war but know it's important what I'd like for them to have is a sense of of the drama uh, of the conflict but also of of just what a complex event it was because I think that's the what's the greatest service that you can do as a historian for your readers is not to change their ideas necessarily but for help them to help them engage with complexity mm. Because you know that's a it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing for us as human beings to to do that. I, I in a way I wouldn't like to predict how it it's such a, it covers so much. I wouldn't like to predict how it might change people's ideas because hopefully it'll change them in lots of different directions. But the, the the main thing would be to change. That was Daniel Todman, Britain's War into Battle, nineteen thirty seven to nineteen forty one, is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. 
and in the US it's going to be published in September by OUP. And you can read more from Matt and Daniel in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is now on sale. Also in this month's issue, there are articles on the Battle of the Somme, the Anglo-Saxon king Athelstan, and the 17th century Monmouth Rebellion. Plus, we reveal the results of our 2016 History Hot 100. You can get hold of our July issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new UK subscribers. You can get your first five issues for just £1 each. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history magazine to find out more details and take advantage of this offer. You'll need to quote the code HTP205. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. Taxidermists at the Army Museum of Paris are restoring Napoleon Bonaparte's last horse, Le Vizier. A gift from the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, the White Stallion carried Napoleon to victory against the Prussians and in 1814 even joined the Emperor in exile. Even after its death in 1826, Le Vizier has had a remarkable history. In 1839, the taxidermied horse was smuggled to England to protect it from vandalism in revolutionary France. Its stuffing was removed in order to cram it into a packing trunk, 
before being replaced upon its safe arrival at Manchester History Museum. Le Vizier was repatriated in 1868, when Bonaparte's nephew, Napoleon III, was in power, only to be hidden away in storage for decades when he was deposed just two years later. The stallion will be restuffed, restored and rehydrated before being put back on display. In other news, a classic car used by Winston Churchill has been sold at auction for just over £230,000. The Daimler DB18 Drophead Coupe was the last remaining example of just eight models made in 1939, before production was stopped due to the outbreak of war. The Daimler was loaned to Churchill for use during political campaigns in 1944 and 1949. The wartime Prime Minister addressed crowds from the rear deck of the open-top car, which was specially fitted with a loudspeaker system for the purpose. The car, which the auction house said enjoyed a role in shaping modern Britain, was reportedly sold to a buyer in the US. Meanwhile, one of the key documents of Scottish history, the Declaration of Arbroath, has been awarded UNESCO Memory of the World status in recognition of its international significance. Written in 1320 during the Scottish Wars of Independence, the Declaration of Arbroath is seen as a significant document in Scotland's campaign to assert itself as a free nation. A Latin letter to the Pope signed by the Scottish barons, it was intended to reject English rule and pledge allegiance to the Scottish King Robert Bruce. Elizabeth Oxborough Cowan of UNESCO said that the Declaration rightly deserved the accolade, calling it a wonderful example of our remarkable documentary heritage, both in Scotland and across the UK. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets for this year's History Weekend Festivals are currently on sale. They're taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, including Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver, Simon Sebag Montefiore and Yanina Ramirez. You can find out more details and purchase tickets now at historyweekend.com and if you're a subscriber to BBC History magazine, you'll get discounted tickets for both events. Our second interview this week is with the author and historian Adrian Tinniswood. Adrian's new book, The Long Weekend, focuses on that staple of rural England, the country house, in the years between the two world wars. Matt Elton caught up with him recently to find out more. Why did you choose to write about this subject and in this particular time period? I've always been interested in the the country house between the wars. You know, most of my life has been spent with the National Trust one way or another. So it's been spent with the, the idea of the stately home. And our conception of the the country house in England, is that the, the period in the 1920s and 30s was one of decline. You know, it's demolition, it's destruction, it's when the country house fell, if you like. And I was just I was just kind of wondering if that was really, really the case. So I decided to sort of dig a little deeper and see if there were alternative narratives, you know, different, different takes on that story, I suppose. So what sort of sources and reference points did you use to find out whether that was the case? Well, there are, I mean, there are uh, um, a huge number of, 
of, of sources. I mean, I'm, I'm stuttering here a bit, Matt, because my last um, five or six books have, have, have taken me to the 17th century and to move into, back into the 20th, where I started, in fact, it, suddenly there's a, a plethora of sources, whereas the 17th century, you know, you, you're scratching around. <laughs> in the 20th, you know, there's, there's, there's newsreels, there's, there's newspapers, there's, there's radio recordings, there's photographs. So it wasn't a case of trying to find the sources. It was, it was a case of trying to sift through them, I think. But there's an enormous number. Uh, um, you know, Country Life. Country Life is the classic source because Country Life did so much to to mould our notion of what the country house was, I think. You know, from its inception in the 1890s, it's always carried pieces every week on a particular country house. And in doing so, it's projected an image of the country house as the idyll. You know, it's the Eden that we've been cast out of. It's the perfect place to live. And of course, Country Life has an enormous number of, of um, archive photographs, which have been very useful indeed. But then, I mean, when it comes to, to um, uh, documentary sources, there's the, the, the journals, there are the letters, there are the diaries, you know, there's a, a mountain of material from this period. So I've been spoiled for choice, let's say. And um, the picture that you constructed, did it, did it show something different from that idea of decline that you talked about earlier? Fundamentally different. I mean, that's the thing that, that's the thing that came out most strongly, I think. There is that narrative of decline. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that didn't happen. It certainly did. I was raised in Derbyshire, Matt, and, and in Derbyshire, you've got houses like Sutton Scarsdale that were demolished after the war, that were stripped. Um, there are houses all over the country, hundreds of houses that are being um, uh, sold for scrap, that are you know, having the, the lead ripped off their roof, that are having the plaster work taken from their ceilings, whole rooms being sold to uh, other parts of the UK or being sold to America. There's a wonderful staircase in the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, in New York, and it's from Cassibury in Hertfordshire, this beautiful 17th century staircase. Cassibury was taken down in the 20s, and the, the staircase now leads to nowhere. In, I mean, thank goodness it's saved, but it leads to nowhere in New York. So that's true. There definitely was this narrative of decline. But alongside that, there is a kind of a parallel story about the country house in the 20s and 30s. And it's a thriving cultural community. It's a new, vibrant, dynamic world of, of, of country house living. And that's what really struck me. So, I mean, for example, one of the things that people often forget is a lot of country houses carried on just as they had, just as they always had. The example I, I, w I was intrigued by was the, um, the Sixth Duke of Portland at Welbeck Abbey in Nottinghamshire. Now, he inherited Welbeck Abbey in 1879. He's still going strong in the 1920s and 30s. He's still having shoots. He's having tenant dinners. When times get really hard, he has to let one of his chauffeurs go. But, um, you know, this is rough, isn't it? <laughs> but that's about, that's about as tight as it gets for him. So at the, at the upper end of the, the kind of social scale, you have a lot of British aristocrats who are continuing to live exactly as they'd always lived, as their forebears had lived. You know, no change. They complain. They complain about taxes. They complain about doom being just around the corner. But in fact, they carry on living just as they always had. The other side of it, though, I think, that, that, that emerged very strongly when I was working on the long weekend was that there's a group, or rather groups of outsiders that come in, people that aren't necessarily familiar 
with that country house world, but that sees the opportunity to buy country houses. They don't buy the estates. The estates are broken up. So they're buying a house and a park. And, a, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, to me, it would be an estate. I'm looking out over my garden now, and it's a strip about 100 feet long. I mean, you know, they're, they're talking about buying 120, 130 acres of garden and park, but they're not buying communities. They're not buying villages and farms. They're not buying the agricultural estate, which had always gone to, to support the country house. They're just buying the house and grounds. And these people are really interesting. I mean, that there are the obvious ones. There are Americans. And not in the, you know, the the... The traditional story we have is of the kind of Downton Abbey story, you know, Consuela Vanderbilt, the, 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 the wealthy American heiress who was a reluctant bride to an impoverished um, English aristocrat. Um, and Consuela Vanderbilt was the, the, the poster girl for that sort of rather fraught Anglo-American entente. You know, she was forced to marry Sonny Spencer Churchill, the ninth uh, Duke of Marlborough. Her father paid the Duke of Marlborough several million dollars and she became a duchess in return, and she hated it. She hated it. The marriage only lasted 11 years and, 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 and then collapsed. And there's this, uh, before the First War, there is an influx of American money to buttress up English landed estates. After the First War, it's a bit more sophisticated than that because Americans become, they don't just bring money, they bring glamour, they bring sort of excitement, they bring Hollywood. The, the Earl of Jersey, who lived at Osterley, um, in Middlesex. I mean, his he took for a wife, Virginia Cheryl. Uh, Debrett said Virginia Cheryl of Hollywood, USA. She's actually a movie star. She was um, uh, the ex-wife of Cary Grant. And, you know, this kind of influx of, of quite exciting new blood leads to a change in country house culture, I think. You can see it. Um, there's a whole group of, of Anglo-Americans. Olive Wilson-Filmer, Olive Paget, as she was before she married. She is the descendant of the Marquis of, of Anglesey. She's got a, you know, on one side, she's got a, an aristocratic a British pedigree. On the other side, she's a Whitney heiress a, a, in America, which means that she comes with $2 million. She buys Leeds Castle in Kent and restores it. She, she's got, you know, a foot in each camp. Ronnie Tree at Ditchley Park in Oxfordshire is an Anglo-American, and as is his wife, Nancy, who becomes Nancy Lancaster and, and runs Colfax and Fowler, the design firm. So there's a whole group of Anglo-Americans who are moving into the country house and making something different of it and saving it. Added to that, there are other kinds of outsiders. There's a, a gay community of country house owners in the 20s and 30s, people who, in, you know, in, in the repressive 20s and 30s, when, you know, we tend to forget that homosexuality was against the law then. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't come out, but you could move in, in circles, you know, that were euphemistically called artistic circles, you could, you could move in circles that were comfortable, where people would be comfortable with your sexuality even if they didn't share your, your, your sexual interests. I mean, Cecil Beaton's Ashcombe down in, uh, on the um, Wiltshire-Dorset border is a, a good example of that. I mean, for, for years in the 30s, um, Cecil Beaton lived in this fragment of a great old country house. And, gosh, he used to throw parties. By golly, he did. He knew how to throw a party. They were theatre people who came to his parties, and some of them were gay, some of them weren't. Nobody really cared. Joel Berners and his, his mad boy, Joel Berners and Robert Heber Percy, held court at Farringdon in, um, on the Oxfordshire border, the Wiltshire-Oxfordshire border. Again, overtly gay community, a sort of sub-community, if you like, but within a country house setting. 
Are there any uh, particular scenes that you'd like to have witnessed or characters or stories that stand out for you in the course of, of this book? Yeah, I mean, the, the man I would love to have met is the archetypal outsider, Sir Philip Sassoon. Sassoon had Iraqi and um, uh, Indian heritage. He was the son of an immensely rich banking family. And he, he's Jewish. He's the subject of that kind of casual racism there is at the time. And very pu- there's very little overt racism to Sir Philip Sassoon. Um, uh, so, you know, everybody calls him exotic or oriental. They don't come out and say, you know, he's not one of us because basically he was so rich they couldn't. Um, he's a, a tremendously charming man and he builds himself two country houses. He builds um, Port Lim down on the on the edge of Romney Marsh in Kent, which becomes a byword for entertainment. I mean, everybody goes there from Charlie Chaplin and T. Lawrence to, to Lloyd George and his mistress to Churchill. Everybody visits, wants, wants to stay at Port Lim, which is this bizarre mixture of English country house and Hollywood Alhambra. There's kind of Moorish qualities. There's, there's, there are painted rooms by Rex Whistler. It's a fabulously exotic place. And at the same time, he builds himself another country house in Hertfordshire, Trent Park, which is a huge Victorian pile. And Philip Sassoon in the 1920s reinvents it. He reconstructs it as a Georgian country house. And he fills it with his Georgian furniture and paintings. And it, it becomes another stage on which he can act out his Englishness. He plays at being an English gentleman. And the one scene I would have liked to see, I think, I mean, there's many, but one that sticks out is uh, um, Robert Boothby tells the story about going to Trent Park for a, a country house weekend. And he arrived early, he arrived on the Friday night, everyone else was coming on Saturday. And he's woken up early on Saturday morning by the sound of wheels on the drive. And there's this wagon train of carts coming up the drive at Trent Park, all filled with fresh flowers, which Sassoon basically just bought Covent Garden Market, the contents. There's an army of gardeners standing by, and that morning, before the rest of the visitors arrive, Sassoon has his gardeners to plant up all the borders just for the weekend with fresh flowers. What else do you think this story tells us about wider uh, society in the period? It tells us about conceptions of class, I think. It, it tells us, you know, it tells us that the, the old feudal survivals that, you know, that the, the, the continued in a way, that have continued in the English countryside right through. They're breaking down. I mean, I mentioned the Duke of Portland, and there are pockets, as at Welbeck Abbey, the Marcus of, of Bath at Longleat. I mean, there, there are survivals, feudal survivals, if you like. By that, I mean, there are places where one man owns entire communities, you know, a a couple of dozen villages, the whole landscape, you know, and has a kind of control over them. But that that sense of feudal overlord, if you like, is disappearing in the 20s and 30s as new money is coming in, as outsiders are coming in, without any... One of the downsides is that they don't have an interest in community. And a lot of them will buy a country house, rent a country house, they'll move on in five years, ten years. They're not there for the long haul in the way that the established um, British gentry and aristocracy were. Why do you think, given that we're so fascinated with this kind of social phenomenon. Why do you think the idea that it did just decline has been so pervasive? I think, to a certain extent, that has to do with... Well, well, one, it has to do with the fact that it did decline. You know, I mean, as I say, my, my narrative is not a is not a counter narrative. It, it, it's a, it's parallel with it. The two things are happening at once. There's no doubt. Hundreds of country houses went between the wars, but 
they were only a fraction of what was there. The other thing I think the National Trust has been almost unwittingly has, in its own interest, portrayed this notion of the stately homes of England in decline, because, of course, that enabled the Trust to portray itself as the saviour. From the National Trust Acts of the 1930s were, were there to enable the National Trust to take on um, stately homes and save them. So, without meaning to, I think, the National Trust has stressed that side of things, because, of course, it, 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 it gives it its raison d'etre. Are there any stories of staff that particularly stood out for you? I came across a, a lovely chap called Herbert Parker. Uh, I met him years ago. He was uh, in service from before the First War, and I met him in the 1970s when he was ob- obviously very old. Um, he'd retired, and he gave me a typescript of his memoirs. And the thing that interested me about Herbert Parker's um, career was the way in which he moved jobs. We have this notion of the faithful retainer. What in fact is happening, staff are moving on very quick. You know, they're moving on from, from one job to another. They're in search of, of better paying conditions. And Parker, uh, in his long, long career, which spans about 60 odd years, he's got about 15, 20 jobs. He moves, you know, as a valet and a, um, and a butler, he, he moves back and forth. The other side, I think, was uh, Rose Harrison, who was ladies' maid to Nancy Astor at Cliveden, presents a, a, a wonderful portrait of an intimacy. As ladies' maid, she was very close to her mistress, but she is really close to her. When, when there's a heartrending moment when Nancy Astor's sister died in the 30s, and uh, the doctor came out and said to Rose, go to your mistress, she needs you. And she holds her arms and weeps. So people were genuinely close. Very close, indeed, yeah, indeed. I mean, there is the other side to it. There are lots of funny stories of bed hopping that that crop up in the period. I mean, one of my favourites is, I can't remember the house now, but about a maid seeing somebody wandering around one of the corridors with a torch in the middle of the night and assuming he was just another bed hopping guest. He was actually a burglar. He nicked nicked jewellery worth 4,000 quid and got clean away. And there was a lot of bed hopping, certainly. Not quite as much as the popular press imagined, but there was a lot. Rose Harrison talks about, I think, when she was at the British Embassy in Rome, not in the country house, when she was there with um, her previous mistress, Lady Cranbourne. And she talks about a a footman trying to get into her room at night and she trapped his hand in the door and broke it. And, you know, that's a laugh, except that for every feisty Rose Harrison who was prepared to, to um, do serious harm to somebody trying to assault her. There were hundreds of less feisty scullery maids and, and, and housemaids who valued their job of their virtue and who were too scared to do anything and say anything. So there's a dark side to it as well, I think. We should also talk about the physical buildings. Are there any that you'd advise listeners to particularly go and visit? There are houses that I'm thinking frantically now because, I mean, so many of the houses that are um, in my book aren't open to the public anymore. Or, or, you know, they're they're in private hands. They've been, you know, they've been restored and they're nice places to live in. But there are great houses like Upton, um, the the best um, family house in um, Northamptonshire, I think it is, Oxfordshire, Northamptonshire, Upton House, which which is a National Trust house, which presents that between the wars life absolutely beautifully and and of course one forgets that a lot of historic houses so chatsworth you know chatsworth is presented to us as a 17th and 18th century powerhouse in derbyshire but chatsworth was a was a a powerhouse in the 1920s and 30s as well and and a lot of what one sees is uh, a 20th century construct It, it interested me very much that people like 
Ronnie and Nancy Tree at Ditchley Park in Oxfordshire. They bought Ditchley Park in the um, uh, early 1930s, uh, which is a lovely Georgian house down at Heel. They restored it, they refitted it, they refurnished it in a Georgian style that suited them. Now, it wasn't a museum. They were neo-Georgians. They were the new Georgians. And they didn't, they didn't want their house to look like a, a, an 18th century house. They wanted to kind of evoke that period. You know, they would deliberately use shabby silks. Um, Nancy Tree would, would leave Damask out in the sunshine and, until it faded a little bit. So it looked a bit old. But there's no sense of them trying to fool anybody. They're just looking for a congenial environment. And that sort of country house look, that, that kind of Ditchley Park Georgian country house look, neo-Georgian country house look, is a really pervasive one. You see it in country houses now all over Britain. This sense of it's something comfortable. It's something comfortable. It's elegant. It's, it's fashionable. And it's a nice environment in which to live. Are there any other ways in which you'd like your book to change people's views of uh, this subject or this period? I hope they just kind of enjoy the period because it is one hell of a period. I mean, it's so much fun. Um, but but also to appreciate the complexities of the period, I think. There's not one style of country house. The, the new country houses that are being built, and, and they were. Some of them are deliberately neo-Georgian, like Philip Sassoon's Trent Park. Others, you know, Elton Palace down in South London, the, uh, Stephen and um, Ginny Courtauld built a new house um, at Elton. And... That's pure Art Deco. Uh, you, in between, you've got old English timber framed. You know, you've you've got Neo Caroline. You've got the odd sort of arts and crafts, fairly Gothic-looking place. Something can look fairly Gothic, but um, you know that kind of that kind of medieval look. You've got all kinds of styles. One of the things about twenties and thirties is there is no one style. There's no one right style for the country house. As, for example, you know, in the 19th century, one can see the, the predominance of the Gothic revival. In the early 18th century, you can see the Palladian country house being what's the absolute, the, the top choice. You don't get that in the 20s and 30s. You get all kinds of different styles and all kinds of different sort of experimentation. And of course, um, because houses are changing hands, you get the old country house. You know, people are building, but by and large, they're buying old places and doing stuff to them. So it's a very mixed, it's an exciting period because there's so much going on in it, if you like. There's not a sort of a definitive style at all. This is a period obviously bookended by two uh, world wars. What effect did they have? The first war has a tremendous effect. Not only do so many of the landed classes, the traditional country house owning classes, die in the First War, and their heirs die in the First War. So at Stourhead, for example, Henry and Alda Hoare, who had lived as, you know, their family had lived at Stourhead for 200 years nearly, um, their only son and heir dies in Palestine in 1917. And they've got no one, you know, they've got no reason for carrying on. They've got, they spend the rest of their lives, and they don't die until the 40s, but they spend the rest of their lives mourning the loss of their heir. But there's a, there's a more subtle effect that the First War has, I think, which is it, it sends people to the it, not even the British, to the English countryside, because this is what we were fighting for. This is the England that we've just fought for, and it makes them treasure it a, a lot more, I think. John Buchan buys himself a country house in Oxfordshire after when he comes out of the author after the war. And, you know, he talks about this, this being England. That there's a sense in which the country house comes to epitomize, it comes to symbolize what the war was all about. And it becomes all the more precious because so many people died fighting for it.
The second war, I think, is, is, is just as important in a different way. To my mind, it's the second war which really does signal the decline of the English country house, the British country house, if you like. With the second war, with the effect on, on the labour market, which means that servants become a lot harder to find, the damage done to so many country houses that were requisitioned by the military in the war and, you know, and never repaired. By 1945-46, you see the, the country house in crisis in a way that it hadn't been in the 1920s and 30s. Oddly enough, that's exacerbated by Clement Attlee's government. I mean, the, the appearance of a Labour government in 1945 convinced a lot of the traditional landed gentry that you know, this was the end of civilization as we knew it. And, and they rushed to, the national, to give their houses to the National Trust. I mean, they were mistaken in that, that um, whatever one's politics, it's certainly true that historically Labour governments have done rather more for heritage than, than, than Conservative governments had. But you could see where they were coming from. They thought this was it. You know, the Soviet Union was just around the corner kind of thing. Uh, so it had a tremendous impact, that the Labour government. But the war itself, I think, just kicked the heart out of the English country house. That was Adrian Tinniswood. The Long Weekend is out now in the UK, published by Jonathan Cape. And in the US, it's also available, published by Basic Books. Well, that's pretty much it for this episode, but do listen in next week, when we'll be discussing life in Paris for women during the Second World War, and finding out about the British Housewives League. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 